Hello everyone, my name is Jonathan Hewitt and welcome to the Conservative Voice Show, your place for honest, controversial, and the hottest in political conversations. So what's up Patriots and welcome back to the Conservative Voice Show. We got a lot planned today actually with some big news coming out of Texas which I'm sure if you stay up on the news, you're well aware of. We're gonna talk about that. We're gonna talk about the truths about COVID-19 and what the data actually suggests. And we'll also take a dive into the constitutional challenges being presented by Texas. And like I said, the real data behind the COVID-19 pandemic. This and much more on today's show. So let's get into it. All right, so we're gonna start off by talking about COVID-19 and the ridiculousness that's been going on with the reporting of it. I know that the big news is Texas, but you're gonna have to stick around with me for that one, right? I promise you we will get to it, but we're just gonna go over COVID first, and then we'll get into all the nuances of that legal challenge down in Texas. All right, so with COVID, over the past few weeks, we have seen the media and the Democrat politicians begin to spiral out of control because of it, which you would think, given the fact that we have a vaccine that's from all data, 95 plus percent effective in, in treating it and, and ensuring that people remain safe and that that's on the horizon of being here and that the prospects of it actually being able to be to American citizens, that we might be getting close to being out of the woods and that they would be relatively happy about that, right? But if you listened to my show yesterday, then you know I am a huge fan of New York and the governor there, which is a joke, and their news is a joke, and the majority of CNN and NBC and all that that come out of New York is a joke. So, yeah, right? Because they're not. Even though that, that vaccine is right there, like, on the cusp, we are still not seeing the left-wing politicians or the news art outlets beginning to suggest that, hey, things might be going good for America, right? Now, inside the New York news, right, I, or inside when I was in New York, I talked about the news there, right? And I told you yesterday that the news was like, talking about like there being the end of times and you need to stay indoors or you are going to die. Now, I'm editorializing that a little bit, but that's the perception that they're giving off, right? Now, before we get into this, I'm not trying to say that the 282,000 people or so that have died this year because of COVID do not matter, because they do. They absolutely do. But what we're going to do is we're going to take a dive and look at how deadly this virus actually is, what the data shows, and what the data suggests would be the most vulnerable people to that like virus and what we need to be doing to help ensure that we're protecting that vulnerable people, right? And then we're going to compare all of that data to things that we're seeing presented in the mainstream media and just see how different and contrasting those two things are. All right, so let's start by taking a look at the data presented by the CDC when it comes to the cases and death tolls. So everything that I have here regarding to COVID and then talking about the Constitution later, I'll leave it in the show description below. I'll leave a link in case you guys want to go read read it, look at it later, because we're going to go over like two or three case studies that are going on that are from pretty good like medical, um, not pretty good, but from the medical field. And so we'll talk about all of that, and I'll link all that in the show description below. So if you need it, you can find it. All right, so let's start with just the overall numbers. So everything I'm going over here, it's from the CDC's website, and you can find it there, all right? So COVID-19 started reporting January 21st of 2020. So we're looking at 11 months now. There's been 14,823,129 cases in America, all across the nation, right? Nationwide. There's been 282,785 deaths nationwide. And looking at an average daily case per 100,000 people of 60. And that was updated today as of 12.16 p.m. So December, I'm sorry, not today. I'm sorry. Yesterday, as of 12.16 p.m. So nationwide, we have 14, almost 15 million cases. De deaths were pushing 283,000 deaths nationwide, right? 
And when you're given just those pure numbers, you're kind of like taken back by like, if I were just to look at this, I'd be like, well, damn, that's almost 15 million people that have died. Or I'm sorry, 15 million people that have caught the virus and almost 283,000 people that have died from the virus, which sucks. Like that's really, really like crappy. There's no other way to put it. But when we look at this and we break it down to demographics, right? We're gonna see a whole new spectrum of what the data actually suggests. Because anybody who's taken statistics, anybody that knows anything about numbers says that you can, the, the idea that numbers can't lie is sort of true because numbers can't lie. I can say that there's been 14 million people that have caught the virus. And if I only give you that number with no context of the age of people that have caught it, the age of people that have died from it, who's vulnerable to it, that would give you reason to be worked. It would. But when we take a look at the actual statistics of age groups and then death by age group, you're gonna see a whole different picture, right? So according to the CDC as well, we're gonna look at the cases by age group and then death by age group. So if you're between zero and four years old, so if you have a child that's between zero and four years old, 191,983 have caught corona. That makes up about 1.8% of all cases. If you have a child between the age of five and 17, about 901,000, um, 901,070 cases, making up about 8.3% of all cases. Now, we have a huge jump here. If you're between the ages of 18 and 29, there's been 2,547,210 cases of COVID-19, making it about almost a quarter, about 23.4% of the total cases. Then 30 to 39, you're looking at 1,794,402, making up about 17%. You have the um, age rate between 40 to 49, making up 15% at 1,641,709 cases. Now here you're gonna see another huge jump again. If you're between the ages of 50 to 64, you are going to make up 20% at 2,226,961. And then here's where it's going to get really, really interesting. And I wish, I think I'm gonna put it up on the screen when I do this, when I put it into the YouTube video, right? Is that you're going to see if you look at the graphs that as you go down in age, or up in age, so it goes down, you see the amount of cases, the actual amount of cases being less. So older people, because we're protecting them more, are becoming less infected than younger adults. But when you look at the deaths by age group, you see the complete opposite. Even though the 65 to 74 is only sitting at 7.6% of the total deaths, you're looking at 75 to 84, looking at, I'm sorry, 65 to 74, making up only 7.6% of total cases. 75 to 84 years old, making up 4.1% of all the cases. And then 85, plus years old, making up 2.7% of all cases, right? But when you look at the deaths, that same total, 85 years old and older, make up 32.5% of all COVID-19 related deaths, right? So you're, you're looking at 66,094 Americans over the age of 85 that have died, right? Then you're looking at 75 to 84, making up 27%. Right? right there you have over 59% of the population, or I'm sorry, 59% of the people that have died being out of two age groups that are being recorded by the CDC, right? So if you're between the age of 75 to 84, 27% of them have died, or I'm sorry, 54,926, 54, making up 27% of all the total deaths have died. And then if you're 65 to 74, 42,361 people have died. If you're between the ages of 50 and 64, you have 30,000 of them that have died, right? And then when we get to 40 to 49, you're going to see a rapid drop. So between 50 and 64 years old makes up 14% of all the total deaths. 40 to 49% makes up 3% of the total deaths. 30 to 39 makes up 1.3% at just over 2,500. And then 18 to 29 year olds make up less than 1% of only 1,000 that have died. And then five to 17, only 100. And then zero to four years old, only 50, right? So what the data would suggest is that even though the vast majority of the infections are coming from younger people, because younger people are out socializing, 
they're trying to buck off all the restrictions that all these governors and states are trying to impose, and they're gonna go out and hang out with their friends and do whatever they're gonna do. Even though they have a larger amount of the infection rate, their death rate is significantly lower. The data would also very, 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 very much suggest that if you're under the age of 50 years old, that the risk of you dying is very, very, very significantly low. Significantly low. Right now, obviously, once you get over the age of 50, on the way up through the end of your life, right, the chance of you becoming more susceptible to death through the virus is very, 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 very true, right? And that is something that we've been talking about for a long time, is that even if you are a vulnerable population, if you have, if you're over the age of 50 or you have something that would help with, or that would aid with comorbidity, something like that, then yes. Or you're immunocompromised, then yes. Protect yourself. Don't go outside, social distance. Make sure that you're taking all the responsible steps that you need to. But the numbers that we're at an end of times and that the numbers are exploding and the deaths are exploding and just is not represented by the data that we're seeing. Yes, there's been an increase in cases, okay? An increase of cases does not mean that there's been a huge increase in deaths. Now that has there been an increase in deaths? Yes, but the increase in deaths is coming from that vulnerable population, not from the five to 17 year olds that are, 108 of them out of the 10,872,382 cases that are being reported here have died. It does, the data just does not suggest locking down the entire nation for that, right? So now we've seen the data here that we've just gone over. And how is this data represented? Well, if you go on over to CNN and you go, it's been trending on CNN for months, COVID-19, you can go here, right? You have three hours ago, so I'm Eastern time, so you're looking at 11.30, 11 o'clock Eastern time, or nine o'clock Pacific Standard Time, whichever one. Dr. Fauci saying, I think everyone uniformly needs to admit that we have a real problem. We've got to own the problem. Fauci told BBC World News, Katie, Katie K at the 2020 Bloomberg American Health Summit. If you, do, don't, if you don't own the problem, you're never going to fix the problem. Well, the problem is that you're not addressing what the problem is. The problem is not that COVID-19 exists because it will always exist. The question that we need to be asking ourselves is, how do we protect the vulnerable population while putting Americans back to a normal way of life? How do we protect those vulnerable populations while ensuring that Americans can go back to work? How do we protect those vulnerable populations while ensuring that the strain on the US and national economy is not absolutely Mo like monstrous. Those are the questions that we need to be asking. Those are our problems. The problem is not just acknowledging that COVID-19 exists because we all know that that exists, right? You also see three California counties have no ICU capacity, health department says. From CNN, Stella Chan and Sarah Moon, at least three California counties in one of the regions in a stay at home order has 0% intensive care unit capacity available according to the data the State Department of Public Health is, I'm sorry, according to the State Department of Health, Public Health. So what, what I find funny is they completely contradict themselves in, in, their, uh, in their reporting. So CNN and California, Gavin Newsom, Andrew Cuomo, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, all of them are huge advocates of the stay-at-home order, right? Huge, huge advocates. Now, I don't know which of these three counties are, right? But either one or two things. Either one, the stay-at-home order does not help because even though they've had stay-at-home orders, they've overran their ICU capacity. Or these California counties are incredibly rural with very, very rural hospitals that have led to the overwhelm of the ICU um, capacity availability, right? So. It's very, very funny when you look at the way that the news reports it, when you say on one thing, stay at home, that's how we're going to curb the ICU beds being overran. And then three hours ago, you have CNN, the exact same news agency saying, oh, well, stay at home, stay at home orders aren't enough either. So what's gonna come next? What are we going to institute next, right? And the data just does not suggest that 
that stay-at-home orders or lockdowns or any of that is the reason, I'm sorry, or any of that is going to help stop the spread of COVID-19, right? This is not going to happen. And like I said, ultimately, the spread of COVID-19 is not what is necessarily the bad thing. If I get COVID-19, me and my wife are not incredibly concerned about contracting COVID-19. Why? Because we know that neither of us are the vulnerable population. We do not live with a member of the vulnerable population, right? So if I contract the virus, my chance of survival is very, very high. If my wife catches the virus, her chance of survival is very, very high, right? And that is how it should be. Those of you that are under the age of 50 and have no underlying medical conditions that would add and exacerbate the virus should be allowed to go back and live your life. Go back to work, go back to mingling, go back to having fun with your friends, going back to going to movies, bowling alleys, drinking at bars, doing whatever you want to do, whatever you were doing, as long as it does not pose a risk to the vulnerable population, right? Like, it's absolutely crazy how much they push and push and push and push and push the numbers of deaths and cases without any form of context. So in a morbidity and mortality weekly report by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention earlier this year reported globally approximately 170,000 confirmed cases of coronavirus caused by the 2019 novel coronavirus have been reported, right? Now what it goes, although the majority of COVID-19 cases in China were mild, approximately 80% of the deaths occurred among adults age above 60 years old. Only 0.1% of deaths occurred in a person under the age of 19. In this report, COVID-19 cases in the United States that occurred during the February 12th to March 16th, 2020, and severity of disease, hospitalization, admission to an intensive care unit or ICU, and death were analyzed by group. As of March 16th, a total of 4,226 COVID-19 cases in the United States have been reported to the CDC, with multiple cases reported among older adults living in long-term care facilities. Input. Andrew Cuomo and his shit-ass policy of putting COVID cases back into nursing homes. Anyway, don't forget he also won an Emmy for that. Just remember that, right? Overall, 31% of the cases, 45% of hospitalizations, 53% of ICU admissions, and 80% of deaths associated with COVID-19 were among adults 65 years of age or higher, with the highest percentage of severe outcomes among persons 85 years of older. In contrast, no ICU admissions or deaths were reported among persons aged 19 years of age or younger. Right? So that is what. So right there we have, even at the very, very beginning of this, before the crazy lockdowns, before the like just draconian, like aged, authoritarian leadership that we've seen from a majority of the Democrat states, the CDC recognized that the real issue and the real um, risk came to those over the age of 65 years old. They reported right there in their uh, morbidity, I'm sorry, mor morbidity and mortality report, right? So next what we're going to look at is we're going to look at a study about the mortality among adults aged 25 to 44 in the United States during the COVID-19 pandemic, right? Jeremy Samuel Foss, an MD, corresponding author from Harvard Medical School, Harlan M. Kremholtz, MD, from the Yale School of Medicine, Catherine L. Dickerson, MD, PhD, Harvard-affiliated emergency medicine residency. I'm going to, please, if you're listening to this, do not give me a hard time, right? I'm going to botch your name, I'm so sorry. Thank you, Lynn, PhD from Yale New Haven Hospital, Center for Outcomes Research and Evaluation, Yale School of Medicine. Cleveland Gilman, MD, Emergency Medicine Department, Yuma Regional Medical Center, and Rochelle P. Walensky, MD, MPH, Massachusetts General Hospital, Division of Infectious Disease Medical Practice Evaluation Center in Harvard Medical School, right, put together this, this study about the mortality among adults aged 25 to 44 in the United States. So here's what the results are. As of September 6, 2020, 74,027 of all caused deaths occurred among persons aged 25 to 44 years during the pandemic, right? From March 1st to July 31st, 2020, 14,155 more than the same period of 2019, a 23% relative increase, with a peak of 30% in May. 
Now, so obviously, if you have a pandemic that's ripping through the nation, right? There may be more deaths than there was the previous year. That's not the key part. The key part is what we're about to get to. COVID-19 deaths exceeded unintentional opioid overdose deaths during the last one month, right? Combined, 2,450 COVID deaths were recorded in these three regions, which was New Mexico, Oklahoma, and Texas during the pandemic period, compared to 2,445 opioid deaths during the same period of 2018. So what they have just proven is that in those three states, right, COVID-19 deaths exceeded opioid overdose deaths by five. Five people. Five. Right? Which means that you have an opioid overdose that has not been addressed by a single member of the government for God knows how long now, with no end in sight. However, you have a that same government that ignores the deaths of 2,445 people now saying that the deaths of COVID-19 are absolutely unacceptable and we have to lock down the entire cities, entire state, entire government based on a disease that is just barely more morbid and more deadly than the opioid epidemic in 2018. I, it's absolutely insane, right? It is absolutely 100% absolutely ridiculous, right? So on to another one. This is going to be the clinical outcomes in young U.S. adults hospitalized with COVID-19. Um, it's published in JAMA Internal Medicine, and it is written by Jonathan W. Cunningham, MD, Mat Mathia Nathan MD, MPH, Brian L. Claggett, PhD, and a few other authors. So among 780,969 adults discharged between April 1st, 2020 and June 30th, 2020, 8.1% had the ICD-10 code, which is the coding used for COVID-19 inside the hospital setting, of whom 3,222 were non-pregnant young adults age 18 to 34 admitted to 419 U.S. hospitals. The mean age of the population was 28.3, or 4.4 or years, right? 1,849 were men and 1,838 were black or Hispanic. Overall, 1,187 or 36.8% had obesity, 789 or 24.5 had morbid obesity, 588 or 18.2 had diabetes, and 519 or 16.1% had hypertension. During the hospitalization, 684 patients, 21% required intensive care, 331 or 10% required mechanical ventilation, and 88 or 2.17% died. Vasopressors and entropes were used for 217 patients or 7%, central venous catheters are 283 or 9%, and eight arterial catheters made up 192 or 6%. Morbid obesity and hypertension were common and in addition to the male sex were associated with greater risks of death or mechanical ventilation. Odds of death or mechanical ventilation did not vary significantly with race and ethnicity, which would debunk all the claims that, that the virus disproportionately affects African Americans or minorities, right? Morbid obesity was present in 140 patients or 41% who died or required ventilation. Diabetes was associated with increased risk of the outcome in unvariable analysis, but did not reach statistical significance. Patients with multiple risk factors, morbid obesity, hypertension, and diabetes faced a risk similar to 8,862 middle-aged non-pregnant adults with COVID-19 infections without these conditions, right? So what that means is that young adults between the ages of 18 and 34 ex experience substantial rates and have adverse outcomes when coupled with other things, right? What it means is that the in-hospital mortality rate is lower than what's reported for the older adults with COVID-19, but approximately double that of the young adults with acute myocardial infarction, which means that if all this goes to say that if you are a young, healthy adult and do not have any underlying health conditions, right? You know, you're not morbidly obese, you, know, you don't suffer from hypertension, diabetes, 
cancer, anything else that would make you immunocompromised or that you don't have some form of heart disease or anything like that, that your chances of surviving COVID-19 is incredibly, incredibly high. I think right now that the last time I checked, the survival rate, if you are under the age of 50, is 99.98%, which means you have a 0.02% mortality rate. That is the disease's mortality rate under the age of 50. And I believe it, it was from 50 to like 65 was 99.95%, right? And then I think that anything above that, as you go up in age, the your, morbid, your mortality rate increases. But what all this goes to prove is that the information that's being pro provided by the mainstream media and the left-wing politicians do not match the data nor the case studies that are being done, right? The last study outlines comorbidity is a huge factor of COVID-19. But all the studies, like I said, suggest that if you're under the age of 50 and you do not have any pre-existing medical conditions that would exacerbate the virus, that your chances of dying is incredibly low. But the, the problem that we're having right now, and I think this is the problem across the nation, right? Two action, two problems. The first is that these lockdowns have effects on us too, right? I listened to some doctors talk yesterday talking about the effects of the virus lockdowns compared to the actual virus itself. And in all terms, except if you're a vulnerable population, right? In every single instance, unless you're a part of that vulnerable population, the lockdowns are more harmful than they are good right? Depression is at all-time highs. Alcohol, drug use, all-time high. Suicide, we have seen a rapid increase in suicide with the lockdowns. Economic stunted, starvation increased, economic downturn increased, right? We are seeing all these wide-ranging effects that have real effects on Americans that are stemming from these lockdowns, right? And so you're seeing the non-vulnerable population experiencing these wide range of other things. Like I remember, I think it was in the Megyn Kelly shows where I watched it, she interviewed two doctors there. Um, if you haven't seen it, go watch it, it's a great interview. But they say that you're seeing things like people not going to cancer treatments because they're afraid of the virus. They're more afraid of the virus than they are cancer. Well, the cancer is what's going to exacerbate your virus, right? And so you're seeing people die more frequently of cancer, refusing cancer treatment, or treat any other like chronic disease that they have because they're fearful of COVID. And all of this is the fear that has been struck into people by the left-wing media, by the politicians that have politicized COVID-19 and use it as a way to perpetuate their power, right? There comes a point in time where Americans have to like weigh the risks of the virus because the virus is going to be here to stay. It is never going away. And so Americans have to wait, is the virus so deadly that we should not go outside and that we should continue to lock down until God knows when? Or is it safe for me to go outside and do my day-to-day -day business, go out, have fun, be with my friends, do whatever, as long as I don't risk any of that vulnerable population and as long as I'm not a part of the vulnerable population. And that is a right that the American people should have and it is not the right of the government to make that decision for me. And we see this time and time again, right? We see the people saying, well, you're going to wear this mask. Governors, you see people like Kamala Harris in her vice president debate that said, no, I don't trust Americans to make the right decisions. Well, that is the right of the American people. And you infringe on that, you're infringing on their rights. How about you let us decide for our families what's best for us and our family. And you decide what's best for your family and then look at a way to implement a program that will protect the vulnerable population. Dr. Fauci, I'm speaking directly to you. That is your job, right? The data suggests that the vulnerable population is the ones that you need to protect. That is your problem. Find a solution to that problem. And I can tell you now the solution is not locking down America until you feel like you have the problem solved. That is not the solution. I'm not a medical professional, but that is what needs to happen, right? We need to protect the vulnerable population, vaccinate them, and let the rest of the Americans get back to work. 
I remember, I think we all can remember back in the early months of this year that we were like, just flatten the curve. All right, guys, just long, lock down, hunker down for two weeks, flatten the curve, right? And Americans did that. They 100% did that. They stayed indoors. They didn't go out to restaurants. They shuttered their businesses. They didn't go to church, right? All of these things, the Americans did that to flatten the curve under the basis that once we do that, we're going to be able to go back to living our lives. But I think that it is blatantly clear that the COVID response and reporting from the government and from the news outlets is 100% merely, purely political. That's all it is. Because the response does not reflect the data. But they will not show the data. Like You look at any of those news articles, like right? CNN, Washington Post, New York Times, MSNBC, NBC, right? Hell, even Fox News sometimes does not report the data. They make all of these almost like op-eds, like opinion editorials about what we need to do. Or Dr. Fauci says all of these things, oh, we have a problem, but doesn't provide you the data of what the problem actually is, right? They show you those big numbers, 14 million infected, 283,000 dead, but do not give you any form of context on what populations are actually being affected heavily by the virus. And if they do that because if they actually provided you that data, you would be able to make a logical and a reasonable risk calculation for you and your family, and they cannot have that because that risk calculation would undermine their grabs at power that we've seen these gov governors and, and other Democratic politicians do, right? You have Ohio governor saying that you're going to wear a mask inside your house. You have the Michigan governor saying how many people you can have inside your house. You have a video of a young lady who owns a restaurant that got shuttered. However, she had, it was shuttered even though out, she was dining outdoors in a, in a tent with social distancing. Then you have a furniture store, some other department store-like thing that was deemed essential that then had some huge banquet outside right next to hers, but was okay. Right? So you have all of these things where the government decides what businesses are essential. Well, I can tell you right now, every single small business in America is essential. Every single job is essential. And it may not be essential to the, to the operation of the government, but it's essential to those Americans that feed their families. It's essential to taking care of their families. It's essential for putting food on the table. It's essential for them to pay their bills. It's essential for them to be able to continue their livelihood. Every single job is essential, and the government seizing the power to decide who can and cannot work is absolutely, 100%, non-negotiably wrong. There's no, in no world is that okay. Absolutely not. All right. So that is COVID-19, and that is a, a dive into the data and some of the case studies that are going on. And I just wanted you guys to have the, the data to make your own decisions because we're not getting that in the media, right? So like I said, I will link every single one of those studies down below along with the CDC's website. Go there, check it out for yourself, read them, study them, make the decisions, and then we'll see where it goes from here, right? The vaccine's coming out. They're saying they're gonna vaccinate the, um, sorry, they're saying they're gonna vaccinate the vulnerable populations first and first responders, and then we'll see where that goes, right? And then obviously if Trump has his way, then Americans will seize the majority of those vaccines, even though the rest of the left-wing government and everybody else says that the America First um, approach is absolutely wrong, which still baffles me. Anyway, Patriots, so finally on to that big news for today, Texas and their lawsuit against those four swing states, right? Now, I can't help but laugh. Like I said it yesterday when I, like I shortly like, just mentioned it in the, in the show yesterday. Like, if I were to think of any state that were to do this or bring this lawsuit, it definitely comes from Texas, right? Texas is, Texas does not care. And I, they have defended their rights, defended their people's rights for as long as I can remember going back through history. And so it does not surprise me that they're doing the same again for the Americans, right? All right, so for those of you that do not know what I'm talking about, yesterday the Texas Attorney General, Ken Paxton, filed a lawsuit against Georgia, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan for unconstitutional changes to their election laws, right? Along with violations of the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. Now, I know that this may seem like 
may not seem like a big deal because multiple cases from the Trump administration claiming similar things have been thrown out in lower courts. However, to understand why this is a big deal, we got to kind of piece apart the Constitution, understand what the Constitution says when things like this occur, and what way we're going to go with it. So when a state sue, I'm sorry, when a person sues another person or a person sues a state, it's going to go to their state led their state courts, right? Or their lower courts, and then to the appellate courts. And then they can appeal it to the Supreme Court if they wish, right? That is the way that it happens if you sue another person or you sue the state. But however, when a state sues another state, the Supreme Court's original jurisdiction kicks in, meaning that that case can only be heard at the Supreme Court. So it bypasses all of the state lower courts and goes directly in front of the Supreme Court. That is why we saw shortly after the announcement of the lawsuit from Texas that it was docketed by the Supreme Court almost immediately because the original jurisdiction outlined in the Constitution states that when the state sues another state, the Supreme Court is that jurisdiction. So, along with Texas, as of now, according to Fox News, at least three other states have declared their support of the Texas lawsuit and won in on the fight, according to Evie Fordham with Fox News. President Trump on Wednesday touted Texas suit demanding the U.S. Supreme Court block the electoral college votes of Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin called it, end quote, the big one. Trump's legal team has faced repeated setbacks in challenging the results of the states that went for president-elect Joe Biden. Trump's team could file an amicus brief in support of the Texas suit. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton sued battleground states Pennsylvania, Georgia, Michigan, and Wisconsin on Tuesday to challenge their 2020 presidential election results. These elections in other states where state law was not followed affects my voters because these are the national elections. And so if there are fraudulent things or things that affect an election, state law is not followed as is required by the Constitution. It affects our state, Paxton told Fox and Friends on Wednesday. It affects every state. We can't go back and fix it, but we can't say, okay, let's transfer this to the legislature and let them decide the outcome of the election. This would be a valid constitutional situation, Paxton continued. The legal challenge seeks to invalidate the 62 electoral college votes from those four battleground states and award Trump a second term, alleging unconstitutional changes to the election rules before the vote. So now what does all that mean, right? Well, first, I do not believe there is anywhere in our history any precedent where 62% of electoral votes may be cast aside and not allowed in the election. I, I don't know of any. And the Supreme Court is going to have to wait the unconstitutional changes of the law, which we'll go over here in a few minutes, why they were unconstitutional and what it means, against the interests of the voters. If they find it unconstitutional, that would mean millions of voters would not necessarily get their votes heard, which here in a second later we'll go over why they would get their votes heard. But they have to weigh the disenfranchising of all those voters against the constitutional, the constitutional constitutionality of what occurred. Now, on the flip side of that, if they side with the states that changed their laws last minute, it would set a, a slippery slope that would allow politicians to seize power whenever they want if they claim that there is an issue or some form of exception to the Constitution. That's what we're looking at, right? Because the defense we all know is going to be, oh, well, there's a COVID-19 pandemic. Well, there's not a pandemic law. There's no clause in the, in the Constitution that allows you to just disregard it because you want to. So why is it so important and what is Attorney General Paxton referencing? Well, Article 1, Section 4 of the Constitution is very, very, very specific on election laws, right? So Article 1, Section 4, Clause 1 says the times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the state, by the legislator thereof. But the Congress may at any time, by law, make or alter such regulations, except as to the places of choosing senators, right? Which means it is only changeable by state legislation. Legislation means there's no executive order, proclamation, mandate, secretary of state announcements. None of that can be changed by any of those. It has to be legislated in the law. 
And the reason for this is so that it can't be tainted or used in one person's interest, right? It's actually to stop the exact thing that's happening right now. That, that section was seen by, the four, by our founding fathers as a way to protect against election fraud, a way to protect our elections, protect the integrity of the elections. And all of those proclamations and changes and mandates and executive orders and all those things that changed the election laws violate the Constitution and set up very, very, very dangerous things for the country, right? Inside that closet, there is no exception, right? And there is no exception to the Constitution. I've said it before and I will say it again. There is no pandemic clause. There is no virus clause. There is nothing in the Constitution that says, well, there's the influenza is going around so I can change every single part of the Constitution that I want to fit my agenda. That is not said in the Constitution, right? And I would go out on a limb to say that times like this are the exact time that we need the Supreme Court. Not because of the election, necessarily, right? But because it's times like this that test our Constitution. That test the ability to, for Americans and the American government to hold true to the Constitution that it was founded upon. And the Supreme Court has to weigh in on the legality of these changes and the legality of the violations of the Constitution. So, now, it's going to say, it's going to set very, 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 very big precedent, right? Like I said, what will happen if they throw out those votes? Well, we have to look back to the Constitution for that. So, Article 2, Section 1, Clause 3 of the Constitution says, I'm going to read this, we'll talk about it, and then I'll finish reading it. Representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among several states, which may be included. Right? I'm so sorry. I was reading the wrong one. Forgive me, guys. I'm so sorry. I was reading Article 1. Section 3, instead of Article 2, Section 3. Sorry. The electors shall meet in their respective states and vote by ballot for two persons, of whom one at least shall not be an inhabitant of the same state with themselves. And they shall make a list of all persons voted for, and of the number of votes for each, which list they shall sign and certify, and transmit sealed to the seat of the government of the United States, directed to the President of the Senate. So that right there is talking about the Electoral College, right? The electors shall meet, they shall vote, send it to the Congress. Then it says, the President of the Senate shall, in the presence of the Senate and the House of Representatives, open all certificates, and the votes shall then be counted. The person having the greatest number of votes shall be President. So that's talking about Congress counting the electoral votes. If such number be a majority of the whole number of electors appointed, I'm sorry, the person having the greatest number of votes shall be president. If such number be a majority of the whole number of electors appointed. So, Premier says that if you have the most votes and be a majority of the whole numbers, right? So, majority of the, all the electors right now is 270 electoral votes. That's why that's always the race to 270 in the election. It's because that's what you need to win the majority and win the election. So, you have to have 270 votes. But if you take away 62 of those votes, you no longer have either side reaching 270 electoral votes. So then what happens? The same clause number three says, if such number be a majority of the whole number of, whole number of electors appointed, and if there be more than one who have such majority and have an equal number of votes, then the House of Representatives shall immediately choose by ballot one of them for president. So if there is no majority, or they have equal votes, then the election then goes to the House and Congress for a vote, where the House of Representatives will decide the president and the Senate will decide the vice president. Which I think has a lot of like Democrats and I don't mean to sound rude, but uneducated uh, people on the left, super, super excited. And how even people, uneducated people on the right, super, super sad about this. But we continue reading and we'll see how this could possibly play, play out in Trump's favor. But in choosing the president, the vote shall be taken by states. The represent, representation from each state having one vote 
A quorum for the purpose shall consist of a member or members from two-thirds of the state, and a majority of all the states shall be necessary to be a choice. In every case, after the choice of the president, the person having the greatest number of votes of the electors shall be the vice president. But if there should remain two or more who have equal votes, the Senate shall choose from the ballot, choose, choose from them by ballot the vice president, which is the exact same thing, right? So neither vice president can get the 270 votes or a majority because we're going to hypothetically cast out 62 electoral votes if that's what happens in this lawsuit, right? So then you have the Senate selecting the vice president, vice president and the Congress choosing the president. But like it said, the, represent, the representation from each state having one vote, which means there's only 50 votes in the House. Currently, 33 of those of the 50 states are Republican. 27 of them are currently under Democrat Party, right? Which would lead you to believe that if that occurs, that President Trump would secure 33 votes and win back a second term in the election. Now, I honestly think this is what Trump's legal team has been trying to get at all along. I think that they knew they would not get the support they needed in the Democratic states, in the lower courts, so they were betting on the Supreme Court in their legal battles, getting a, court, a case to the Supreme Court to hear it, to cast out votes, so to force it to go to the Congress for votes. And whether you agree or disagree, this is the way our government handles problems. And what's going to be really, really frustrating is let's say, right, let's put fast forward on and we look at the results and say this does happen and Trump is reelected, you're going to see the left say that he stole the election, right? Oh, well, he stole it. He said he was going to steal it. Did those constitutional challenges really need to be challenged? Blah, 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 blah. Right? You can insert said headline into CNN, New York Times, Washington Post, right? Or now this or any of the mainstream media, right? Of what it will say. But this is the fair way. Trump didn't tell those states to change their election laws. Republicans didn't tell those states to change their election laws. No one told those governors to change it, or secretaries of state, or any of those without legislating the change in the election laws. And this is the appropriate way to handle it. Whether either side likes the outcome, this is the way that our government was founded, and this is the way that we settle constitutional challenges to like challenges to the Constitution, and when things are not done correctly. Like the Constitution is there to protect the integrity of the election, to provide framework for the government, to enumerate the powers of the government, to protect the U.S. citizens, right? And that is, what's, that is what is occurring. And it'll be up to the Supreme Court to decide, right? But of course, the media cannot accept constitutional provisions if it cuts against their narrative and who they want to win, right? So in an article by the New York Times today, written by Nick Corasanti, Jim Rutenberg, and Kathleen Gray, with a key deadline passing Tuesday, that all but ends his legal challenges to the election. President Trump's frenzied campaign to overturn the results of, has reached an inflection point. Certified slates of electors to the Electoral College are now protected by law. And any chance that a state might appoint a different slate that is favorable to Mr. Trump is essentially gone. Supporters of the president, some of them armed, gathered outside the home of Michigan Secretary of State Saturday night. Racist death threats filled the voice of mail of Cynthia A. Johnson, a Michigan state representative. Georgia election officials, mostly Republicans, say they have received threats of violence. The Republican Party of Arizona on Twitter twice called for supporters to be willing to die for something or give my life for this fight. All right. New York Times, you can continue to say all this, but I remember, what was it, December 1st? Yeah. December 1st, when GOP senators had black body bags that were pulled out of rental trucks placed on their doorsteps, right? I can remember that when they were rioting and looting because the left didn't get their way. I can remember the police officers that were ran over, the police officers that were attacked, the looting and rioting and destruction of Democrat cities because 
the left did not get their way. So please do not come at me with this hypocrisy. Do not come at the American people with that hypocrisy because you're wrong. 100% wrong. You don't see Republicans out there looting. You don't see Republicans out there destroying cities because we didn't get their way. You wanna know what you see? You see the GOP members and the Republican members expressing their disdain for the election through the court system, through the correct avenues of law to address their grievances. They are not down at my local Walmart or a Walmart in any city destroying it by thousands of dollars. You do not see cities shuttered, except for by Democrats, with boards because they're afraid of what the left's going to do if they lose the election. You don't see any of that. So please, New York Times, spare me your hypocrisy. Absolutely spare me. All right, guys. So as we speak right now, there are some breaking stories, right? Biden currently is publicly announcing General Austin as his nominee for the Secretary of Defense. He also earlier um, suggested that Marcia Fudge, the um, Congresswoman of Ohio, um, may be the HUD or the Housing or Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, right? It'll be interesting to see how the rest of the Democratic Party reacts to these picks. But let me just say this, right? This is my problem. Biden, if elected, is just refilling the swamp of D.C. with old political hacks, right? People who have been in office before, people who failed in office before and was ultimately voted out. If he wanted to have a legitimate presidency and wants to actually say that and denounce the claim that he's not an Obama 2.0 administration, then he should be filling his cabinet and other staff positions with different people. Like, you can't say you're different and then refill the exact same staff positions with ones from a previous administration. There are plenty of bright minds around the nation that would jump at the opportunity to be in his cabinet or on his staff. But instead, if he's elected, America will be stuck with the same kind of leadership that it voted out in 2016. It's, a, it's, it's frustrating. I think all of us can agree with that, right? Do me a favor. If you made it this far, leave me a comment down below about what you think will happen at the Supreme Court with the Texas lawsuit and how do you think the America as a whole will react to that. And as always, guys, thank you for watching the Conservative Voice Show and stay safe. God bless you and God bless your families and I'll see you tomorrow.